welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast for the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University in Great London, Ontario. We air Tuesdays at 6 p.m. on Radio Western, CHRW, and you can catch us online at our website, gradcast.ca, where you can get all of our old episodes, including this one. Now, I'm here with you. My name's Susan. I'm usually behind the computer and not behind the microphone. So this is pretty exciting to be on air again. And with me is a co-host of a voice you uh, probably heard a few times, who's wonderful host here, Navneet Mohan. Hi, Susan. How Hi. Are you doing? <laughs> Thanks so much. I'm really excited to, uh, to be here. And um, I'm really well. excited because this is a guest that you uh, invited onto the show that you met. That's His right. name is Gavin Tolometti. Yep. And you, the, all you had to say to me was, he studies lava. And I got, oh, yes, mm-hmm. we have to talk to him because that's something we've, we've never talked about at all that's on right. GradCast. So for anyone out there listening, this is a show about lava and lava fields. So hello, Gavin. Welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me. Oh, thrilled to have you. So I was reading a bit about what you do, and we chatted a bit, and you study really the the look of a lava field in some ways. So what does a lava field look like? Like, Describe what a lava field is. Uh, certainly. Uh, well, I know the um, standard look of a lava field is when, especially when people look at Hawaii with the lava flows, they can usually see live during their eruptions. It's kind of think of that at a much bigger scale where I usually go. As if you imagine like a giant crack uh, on the surface of the earth and lava is just pooling out and it's just covering a very large surface, except the surface is all varying. We get very nice, smooth. You get to see some jagged lava flowing atop and around them. You get to see some with like, these huge decimeter sized blocks just piling up and you get like small little syndicone volcanoes along the cracks as well. So that's probably the best picture of the lava field. That's so cool. But these, this is cold lava, right? This is... Yeah. Yeah. Because, <laughs> yeah. again, when oh. I'm picturing lava fields, I'm thinking of, like... Volcano volcanoes. And, and yeah. Things going up on flames. Or the waterfalls of volcanoes in a, in a layer of, you know, Darth Vader-type thing. And... <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> That's awesomely creepy. <laughs> so, um, I, I'm assuming you don't work with... Because you mentioned how they're blocks and rocks. Uh, what do they look like then? They're blackened or? Yeah, they, they are blackened. It's a little bit of red, but that just comes from weathering. But no, I would, I wish it would have been fresh lava I get to observe <laughs> from a safe distance mm, right. at least. But the terrain is still treacherous enough when they've solidified, especially with these blocked ones, because the terrain is very loose and it's very easy to accidentally trip or you step on one and it starts to tumble. Oh. Down a few meter pile of the of the material, so ah. so they aren't they aren't like set in stone over there. Literally, it's <laughs> no, no, not all of them. Some of them are completely they've been fragmented and disrupted on the surface, and that's okay. why they're very rough. And it's not all very stable, so mm-hmm. it does make it difficult to walk along. I mean, we had one day where we only hiked seven about eleven kilometers in total, and normal field work that's like oh that's nothing you could just do that easily in a day but with this terrain it probably triples your workout at the end of it because your legs are very sore from having to walk slowly step down and constantly maintain your balance 
So it's, but it's still a lot of fun. It was completely different from what I'm usually used to. So is this a really flat area? So so where do you go? Because I guess that begs the question, where did you go to look at this? Uh, I went to look at this at uh, Craters of the Moon National Monument and Preserve in Idaho, United States. Sorry. Yeah. I thought you, you were you in ex- the moon. Yeah. <laughs> Craters of the Moon National Monument and Preserve, but in Idaho. Yes, in Idaho. You'd think that the monument slash preserve would, would be on the moon. Mm-hmm. I. Well, I got a lot of questions about that <laughs> before I um, left home to come do my um, research. But it's named uh, Craters of the Moon because it does have a somewhat resemblance to the lunar landscape, mainly areas where you have volcanic, once had volcanic activity. Okay, so there, um, the moon had volcanic activity at one point. It did. It's been, the volcanic activity has been extinct for about roughly two billion some well it's been there some have been time. Yeah. there's been a lot of research on trying to find out when when the last volcanic eruption occurred but i know that generally it stopped around two billion so by studying these lava flows on earth you get to know more about the moon uh in a way it's um a way of predicting what some of these flows on the moon are made of by studying lava flows which have a similar surface roughness on earth because we have full access to hand samples Mm. we're able to take back to the lab and study so you get pretty much your your own version of like a small moon version at on uh earth and you get in idaho right it's still a trip i mean you know you still get to travel with your work (laughs) that's true yeah not (laughs) not to the moon but you know it's to idaho so you had mentioned that there were these different shapes and even even the Surfaces? The fragility and the, even the surface roughnesses. Like, so what? What are the factors that that shape this lava as it cools? Uh, good question. Uh, as a general, there's a lot of factors usually to take into account, but the major ones will be how hot the lava is, how fast it is erupts from the earth. Normally, like what it's made of, like what elements, uh, how many crystals are being made in the lava as it flows. And another one is how resistant it is to flow, which is when we use the term viscosity. Okay, so resistance to flow. I I remember seeing this on Bill Nye once. That's like molasses versus water. Yeah, exactly Okay, so molasses is more viscous? Yeah, it's a lot more viscous. So it flows slower and it kind of trips over itself almost. Yeah, it almost looks like it's folding over, it's tumbling, it's Mm -hmm. tearing because it's being forced to keep moving even though it's very thick and it's very dense. So that's kind of the same with um, some lava flows. And the very the best way to explain it is if you have a catch, if you had a slope, and if I was to get a ketchup bottle, and just to, like to slowly s- spread it over it, you could see how, like a slowly spread out and a very smooth surface. That's generally how you'd get smooth lava flows, which we call them smooth bohoihoi lava flows. Sorry, bohoihoi. Bohoihoi, yeah. Okay, I'm guessing that's a Polynesian. It's Hawaiian a Hawaiian term, term yeah. yeah. It's commonly used over there. Okay. <laughs> and bohoihoi sounds yeah. like a dish. <laughs> oh, yeah, I bet it's really tasty. Uh, anyway, sorry. That, I think it's around dinner time now, isn't it? So. Oh yeah, it definitely is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and another one is if it's very like, viscous and thick, it wasn't as hot as let's say a smoother flow. It could move more a lot more sluggishly, which is where we get the, and starts to break apart. And that's mm. when we start to get a lava flow. We term it as an RR flow. And it moves more like taffy. Okay. So as it stretches and pulls, it's slowly getting torn. And eventually it does snap if it gets too much stress. 
Okay. And that's when you get a very jagged, rough surface on top. And there's all these other flows that break through mechanical uh, fragmentation. So after like a th like a thin crust forms over a lava flow that's still moving, and as it keeps going, it disrupts the surface and it breaks into these giant plates. And eventually, if it keeps on breaking, it turn it becomes like rubble, almost like when you go to a construction site and they're just piling up old building debris. It's kind of that appearance. So you can see so much from just the way it appears, from just just by looking at the the lava surface, you can tell so much about what's happened. What more can you say if you could actually take samples of it back to your lab? Like, like I guess the samples you get in Idaho, right? Yeah, yeah. You got, we able to get a definitive um, element composition, like what is this lava flow actually made of, and we're able to observe what crystals are present, how they're arranged, which gives us an idea of what its texture is like. We get to see how much glass is in these lava flows. It gives us an idea of how rapidly it cooled at some, at one point. So what elements are generally in lava? I guess unearthed lava. Let's say. It can, the list can keep on, is quite endless. But the main elements that people tend to focus on are silica, And that's iron, the glass, magnesium. right? It's, um, it, it, does it is containing the glass, but it's also the crystals that are in lava as well. We normally, what I do is I get the sample and I crush it into a powder. And then it has to be melted at about it gets heated up to, to 1,000 degrees and turns into a melt, which we cool into little glass discs, which we then put into what we call an X-ray fluorescent machine, which just gives us the bulk major element composition of the sample. Cool. So that's including all the crystals, all the glass of the lava. So it gives us this is how much silica is in this lava, how much iron, magnesium, calcium, and so on. Okay. And you said you also get to look at the crystals? Like, how yeah. do you do that? Um, we, I had to cut a small little rectangular piece. It's normally about, nine, I usually measure them by 9 by 3 millimeters, and about half a millimeter thick. And then they get cut into some a little thin slit, which is about a few microns thick. Oh, and onto a glass, onto what, a like glass a, plate. Uh, like a strand of hair or something. Yeah, it's very, very thin. Very <coughs> tricky to handle if you're not careful. Yeah. So we put that under just a normal microscope. And go looking out under it, we're able to see... I'm able to identify what crystals are in the thin sections. I can see how the crystals are arranged, which gives me an idea of like what the average temperature was like. How did this lava flow actually move when it was molten? And also, did it have an episode of rapid cooling, which oh. is usually when the glass forms. Okay, so you can tell all that by looking at a sample. and um, But how can you look at the surface and get that small bit of information? Is there a way to tie those together? Norm to tie that together, that's when the field would kind of take into play. So when I was in the field, usually I would see what the surface roughness is, and then I can classify it as, let's say, a smooth. Was it blocky? Was it one of the rubbly flows? And then I can then compare it to what comp the composition I picked up in the lab, and also what crystals, how were they arranged, how were they arranged, and what were they? And if I can somehow figure tie a relationship between the three, it gives me an idea that a lava flow at this particular surface would have this particular composition and this particular crystal arrangement. So this is where uh, 
the fact that you're part of the Department of, uh, Department of Earth Sciences here in, uh, at Western, but you're also with the Center for Planetary Science and Exploration. That is correct, yes. So how does, this, how does that tie into the moon then? How can you use this to help you with the moon? Well, the moon, uh, adding that in has been quite new, and I'm still working the getting the ropes around that. So. All right, because you, you, you're just about to roll up to a Ph.D., yeah, um, I just got confirmation quite recently that the transfers have gone through. And yeah, I originally came for a master's, but now I'm getting a PhD instead. Oh, great. Well, congratulations. Here's hoping. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck then, not congratulations. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so I can't, I can't really say much about that mm-hmm. at the moment because I'm still doing a lot of the background reading and what, to, what new techniques I have to do to tie that into my research. But what I can say is understanding the surf- why we see particular surface roughness on lava flows on Earth is useful for trying to understand like melt conditions and how flows on the moon were emplaced, whether it's a lava flow or quite new is from impact melts, which are formed from impact craters that you can see on the moon. Oh, very cool. Is it an impact that's so hot that it actually melts the rock around it? Well, you get hypervelocity impacts, which is Mm an object coming out very an extraordinary speed. Uh, once it strikes the surface, if it's inducing enough pressure, it's able to generate melt. Oh, wow. So things can, yeah, hit the moon at such a high... So what high temperatures you are talking about? A thousand degrees, right? Oh, hotter than that. Well, okay. I wow. think some can be up to 1,800, even higher, going towards 2,000 degrees. Oh, wow. Uh, so naturally, this research sounds quite collaborative. Yeah, it's very collaborative, and that's just when my favorite part of the research when it comes mm-hmm. to a lot of analog work where I can compare my site on Earth to potentially somewhere on the moon. So that's when it gets quite exciting. So who else do you call I mean, you mentioned Idaho. So where else has your research taken you, and who do you collaborate with? Um, well, with Idaho, actually, my research collabed with the Finesse team, which works with NASA. And they've been doing a lot of research out there for quite a few years. So. Don't they have mm-hmm. samples from the moon? They do. There are Apollo samples. But the problem is that we don't know exactly where those samples came from because they were just picked off oh. around the landing sites. So they're still <laughs> used. <laughs> like little kids on the it's, beach. Well, <coughs> well it's shells. kind of like yeah, it's your first time to the moon yeah. or first few times to the moon. You just kind of pick up what looks pretty. Put in your pocket. But, yeah. yeah. Be nice oh, yeah. to it's, go there with it was a, never with a bad focus. thing. The data no. is still, the, all the samples that they have from the polymers is still all very useful, and research is still ongoing. And it gives you a good idea of like what were the volcanics there, mm-hmm. what are they actually made of. <clears throat> but it's hard to go back and sample every time you want to go. <laughs> I, I yeah. assume it's hard mm-hmm. to get back there. Well, that's sample. ongoing missions that are trying to be developed, a lot of rover and lander-based ones, but... That's for another day, I guess. It's only a matter of time before Tesla comes out with a reusable spaceship. Yes. SpaceX. I meant SpaceX. Okay, yes. Oh, Elon Musk. Yeah, yeah. Elon Musk. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. But uh, for now, you can work with stuff that you said you worked at with the finesse group at NASA. Yeah. Uh, I We collabed during field work because they've done work there for a few years. They knew the site a lot better than I did, so... I would ask them, oh, where would be the best flow to look for this particular surface? They would point me in the right direction. Still have some contacts with them because they're actually, some of them are co-authors on a paper I'm in the process of writing. So fingers crossed they like it at the moment. cool to work with NASA, right? 
Yeah, I never really say I worked with NASA. Okay. That's why I prefer the mm. word collaborated because people then assume that, oh, so you officially have worked with NASA. And I go like, no, 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 I can't uh. say that. No. Okay. Well, but I won't say that. Worked either, alongside sorry. them. Is better yes. Well, you, you, you had a chance You'll to smash discuss rocks with them. them. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was by myself at that point. No, no one wanted to be. You probably would not have wanted to be near me when I was doing the sampling <laughs> for safety's sake. <laughs> yeah, you were saying before that it was... To, to actually get a sample is like you're not you're not look interested in the surface you have to dig down for it yeah because the crystals and the composition of the, the surface of a lava does not really represent the entire lava so you have to break through almost the shell of a lava to get to the nitty-gritty stuff beneath it and that sometimes can take time oh my gosh so that, that's <laughs> that's the the part you know you glance over you know in your methods of your paper when people are reading about it we say we take samples Little do people know that it's, you know, a couple hours of chipping away at rock with a big axe. Yeah. What's the worst kind of rock to break? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> uh, we have one rock that, from, in my opinion, is definitely the worst, and I think quite a few people agree with me. It's known as quartzite, and it's... We've heard of quartz, because mm-hmm. amethysts are quartz yeah, and stuff, so... It's pretty much just made of that mineral, and it's been fused together... So it's extremely difficult to break, even with a very large hammer. It's quite challenging. Mm-hmm. You'd probably prefer to have like a power saw there just to cut pieces off for you. Well, so, what what is what happened in the history of the quartzite that makes it so indestructible? It's been um, subjected to a lot of pressure and temperature. Oh, okay. So it's just all this the minerals. Like been, yeah, it's it's in a way of speaking. Yeah, it's a lot denser. It's a lot tougher. It's more durable. Oh, well, that's why, like, they make some stuff out of quartz, because it's durability, Yeah, it's quite durable, so it's quite tough. (laughs) So I know uh, Navneeth mentioned you've had some time to travel and stuff. You told us a bit about a collaborator that is an artist, and this sounds really cool. Um, I wouldn't say a collaborator. This was um, my supervisor, Dr. Catherine Nish, was going to visit University of Syracuse in New York, and to meet up with someone that he came to the department last year and showed us how he's been making his own lava by melting rock samples in a blast furnace. That's that's amazing. Yeah, I didn't believe it until I believe him until I saw the presentation mm-hmm. and it actually got me quite excited to hopefully see it. And then my supervisor turned to me the same day saying, oh, we're planning of going probably in the summer so you can tag along. It was this like. last summer? Um, yeah, I went in June. Oh, wow. So what what was the setup like there? It was um, it was just outside. They had the blast furnace outside. It like was constantly backyard? on. Oh, no, no, no. This was at the... <laughs> it was like at a building on the university campus. Okay, all right. <laughs> it was sand covered everywhere just in mm-hmm. case it accidentally felt some fell out. Right. They were pouring it over metal sheets just to see how it flows. The university there was doing a lot of work on... Ha- like lava flow hazard so they were trying to see like if a lava flow was to move through a town like what's going to get destroyed they had and possibly okay. how to stop it without it's i can't say much about that because they only gave me i only got to see what was um going on when i arrived mm-hmm. but it would be difficult for me to say whether that's what they were doing okay but um so this person that you you went to see their their research they actually could manipulate the lava or um yeah like what's the ingredients of lava like (laughs) oh he just um we got some like basaltic samples and he just threw Mm. 
through them. And you can use some most material if you wanted to. Eventually, it all just became glass when it cooled because it cooled quite rapidly. Okay. So he would just, like, once it cooled, he would break it, and then he would usually just recycle cycling just put it back in the furnace so he's more interested in the effects of the the moving part rather than the he was he was more interested in like just what the surfaces it can make that was he he just like looked at one that had these little ripple marks from a real lava flow and he thought i would like to make this so it was like his way of trying to replicate that's that's great that's great because in in a science we see something often in the field and we try to have a way to control it in um in a lab because you know, we want to know if I add this or if I do this, what will it look right. like? Rather than working backwards, you can mm-hmm. manipulate stuff. So was he, he was working on like different manipulations? Uh, himself, not entirely. He, we had a, he just had a lot of people coming up to him saying, I would like to test the, these experiments. And since you're able to replicate lava, if I was to, let's say, increase the temperature by 200 degrees, I'd like to see what it looks like. Oh, okay. So it, he, he helps out a lot of people, and that's what, why we were over there, because we thought we'd like to see how does it flow when it's at 1,200 degrees when it's molten, because we can't cough up a lot. We can't just jump on a plane and go to Hawaii and <laughs> wait for the next eruption, <laughs> oh. as nice as that would be. Yeah. Well, but, I guess, yeah, I have to wait for an eruption. That would be... Yeah, cool. that would be. I mean, I wouldn't mind... Yeah, waiting in Hawaii, in. just yeah. chilling, and then I see smoke from the volcano, going, okay, I guess it's time to get to work. <laughs> yeah, that actually doesn't sound too bad either. So did yeah. you say that to us before that he is, uh, this fellow was an artist? Yeah, he's originally in the art department at that university. Okay, so it was, yeah, it was actually, like you, seeing the form of it and wondering how to make that form. I think it was, yeah, and a good personal interest of going like, oh, that looks really cool. I would like to make that kind of thing. <laughs> so what, what brought yeah. you into um, this field? Um, I guess it all started during my last year of my undergrad, all the way back at the University of St. Andrews in the UK. Uh, I was talking to one of the new professors that came, Dr. Sammy McKell, and he's done a lot of work on Venus and currently still doing a lot of work on Venus. And we started to talk a lot about volcanics because it was a little bit a part of my dissertation at the time. And he told me about all the applications in planetary geology, all the research that's been going on. So from there, I kind of got, it started to pique my interest. And it really wasn't until I started to apply for grad school. And when my friend of mine, who she did a study abroad here at Weston, she told me about this one professor, Dr. Gordon Nazinski. And I looked over his um, bio, his background, his research. And I thought, okay, he's definitely, he's done a lot of research that I'm really interested in now. So after contacting him, he said he was very interested in taking me on as a student. And then that's when I got into contact with my other supervisor, Dr. Catherine Nish. And then we, I ended up accepting yeah, to come to the university. And then we started a collaborative uh, master's degree, which is now, I guess, a PhD. That's wonderful. Now, you mentioned that you looked up uh, Gordon Azizki, um online and learned about him. And... but. You're also online sharing a bit of your research. So is there, where, where can people find out more about what you've done and just about your science in general? Uh, yes, I do have a website I made when I first got here. It's um, gavintolomediatwix.com. Uh, normally it's updated every two weeks, sometimes every week, depending on how much is going on. Most of the time it's about my research, just updates on what I'm up to. 
other times if I've attended workshops, come back from field work, whether it's course related or research related, I just like to discuss this is what I've done, this is what I got out of it. And then sometimes there's a bunch of pictures. There's a lot of, it's a few from the Syracuse trip. So if you wanted to see how I was manhandling that (laughs) fake lava (laughs) with a heat proof jacket, Uh gloves, mask, and metal tongs, which I made sure were a good meter and a half away from me at all times. And it was totally you under all that protection. Oh, it was gear. totally me. Yeah. yeah. Okay. As much as I would like to lift the visor, but uh, even no, even no. with that protection, I could it. still feel the heat. Oh my goodness. Wow. And you're also on Twitter. Yes. Uh, my new Twitter feed now, which I, before was a very mundane one, is now at Gavin on the Moon. Oh, very cool. So. Sweet. Mm-hmm. So we'll have links to that on uh, the description of this podcast. And. Uh, right. So if you guys want to get to know more about this. Lava research Gavin's working on. You can just check out the link on the website. Yeah, the website is gradcast.ca. Um, well, thank you so much, Gavin Tolomeni, for coming and chatting with us about your research. It sounds really cool and hot at the same time. Um, <laughs> I am Susan, and I was here with my co-host, Navneeth. Thanks for having me, Susan. <laughs> Thanks for thanks for coming by, Stephanie. <laughs> yeah, I was just walking by. Just, yeah, just, just walking drop by. In. Yeah, and um, yeah, thank you so much for coming by. I did want to take this opportunity at the end of the show to talk about a new proposition that's being put out to the undergrad students here at Western. The USC has a referendum coming up during your elections about uh, whether or not to fund Radio Western. Now we hope you understand that. Your money is what makes our radio show go. It makes, uh, gives us the airwaves. It gives us the receivers and the towers and everything. And we really appreciate the money that you give to us. Now, one of the op- one of the propositions is to uh, reduce the fees for each student to ten fifty, and we say that's great. We're looking for alternative uh, support and sponsors, and we think that yes, you can reduce the amount. You, if you want to reduce the amount that you want to give to Radio Western, that's okay. But we definitely ask for you to vote for 1050 to keep us on the air and to keep all this research available and are available to you to listen to. And we really appreciate everything that Radio Western does for us here. Um, and I'll just give us a sign off here. So this has been GradCast. This is the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. We air Tuesdays on Radio Western, CHRW, at 6 p.m. You can find us at the radiowestern.ca website to live stream us, or you can find us at our own website, gradcast.ca, where you can download old episodes, or you can find our episodes through iTunes or Google Play or any of those online podcast providers. If you are interested in talking about your research with us or if you want to join the committee, you can be either on air, behind the scenes, uh, or you know, chat with us about how we can make the show greater, please uh, email us. Feel free to email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. Thank you so much all for listening. This theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker.